A judge who is soft on crime has no honor. But a judge who cannot be bought and who deals righteously, we would call an honorable judge. And God is going to get honor. His name is going to be proclaimed. His righteousness is going to be shown. He's going to get honor in His holiness. He's going to get honor in His justice. He's going to get honor in His mercy and in His compassion. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in chapter 9 of our study of the book of Romans, and we've been looking at the topic of sovereign election. That is, God's right to choose the nation Israel out of all the other nations to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Romans 9, verse 15, the Apostle Paul quotes from the Old Testament account of Moses' interaction with God, as outlined in Exodus 33:19. Here, God explains to Moses that God, because of his sovereignty, is perfectly within his right to judge who will and will not die. Let's pick up as Pastor Carl sheds additional light on this important passage. If you think that some were more righteous than others, then you miss the truth that in God's eyes we all fall short of the glory of God. And if you find that truth objectionable, you should not, because all you have to do is meditate on the New Testament, and God opens us up with a spiritual scalpel, which we studied in Romans 1, and He shows what our capacity is. If God had done nothing, if God had shown no mercy, if God had shown no compassion, if He had never sent His Son and damned us all, it would have been perfectly just. And when you really understand that, you fall on your face and you thank God and you worship God for His amazing compassion on your soul. Now back to Romans 9. Let's see the flow and how Paul is using again this quotation. He asks the question, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. He's using this event to illustrate the truth that God, in showing mercy on some, was an expression of His wise, his wise judgment. Paul's implication is interesting. He's basically saying, listen, if you're going to say that God is unrighteous because He chooses one nation over another then you have to conclude that God was unrighteous up there on Mount Sinai when He let any person live. Everybody in the nation deserved to die. And so he, he takes that quote from the book of Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And again, the word mercy can refer to God's covenant mercy. And so he's responding to the question in the context, is it unjust for God to choose the Hebrew people out of all the nations of the world? And Paul reminds them that it has nothing to do with God's justice. It has everything to do with his compassion. Paul is saying God is sovereign and God does as he pleases. And in our American evangelical church where we glorify man... We would do well to hear these words. So that's the first illustration, God's sovereignty in pardoning Aaron Israel. But there's a second illustration that we'll look at quickly, and it's God's sovereignty in punishing Aaron Pharaoh. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, 
but on God who has mercy. Again, he's speaking of national election, choosing Isaac over Ishmael, the descendants of Jacob over Esau. And verse 16 is simply reminding us that God's choosing of the nation of Israel has to do with his mercy. Notice how the verse begins. So then it, what does it refer to? Well, it goes back to the nearest antecedent, to God's mercy. So God's mercy doesn't have anything to do, he says, with the man who wills and the man who runs. God's mercy has nothing to do with human will, with human wish, with human desire. God's mercy is not given on the basis of the man who, who wills, nor is it given on the basis of the man who runs. It's not a reward for human work it's, it, or some accomplishment that you've done. No, human willing and human wishing are not the motivating causes behind God's mercy. It's like God's grace. When we come to Romans 11 and verse 6, he'll say, if it, God's choosing of Israel, is by grace and is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. In other words, what makes the grace of God the grace of God? What makes the mercy of God the mercy of God is it's uncaused in us and it originates from God's own character. So God did not choose Israel out of all the nations of the world because they were such a great people. He chose them because of his mercy. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God doesn't need to consult anyone about his choices. God makes his decisions based on his desire in the way he works, not on man's desire and the way man works. And if he wants to show compassion and mercy on an undeserving nation and make them the Messiah nation out of all the nations of the world, that is his perfect right to do it. And to underscore that, he uses a second illustration by getting us to think about Pharaoh. Now, the Pharaoh of Israel is a great illustration of God's sovereign power in order to choose. Notice, if you will, verse 17. It begins, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. Stop right there for a moment. Let that soak in. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Now, of course, when the Hebrew children were delivered out of Egypt, the very first word of the Bible had not been penned. Right? Moses doesn't write the Torah until they are in the 40 years of the wilderness. But there are times when the literal words that Moses spoke, God equated to his own word. And that's why he can say, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. And of course, he can quote this later on. Now, while you're here, I have circled in my Bible the words he says in verse 15. You see that? He says. And then there's a direct quotation with God speaking. And I have an arrow drawn down to verse 17 where it says, this scripture says. You see that? And again, God is quoted. The terms are equal. He says, the scripture says. Because when God speaks, it is his word. And that's why we often refer to the Bible as the word of God. Now, notice further precisely what God said to Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God used the wicked old Pharaoh as his sovereign tool to bring about a great deliverance by 10 mighty acts that his name would be preached through the whole world. Maybe you're thinking, can God use an unbeliever to accomplish his purposes? He does it all the time, and he does it through many illustrations given to us in Scripture. I read last week in Proverbs, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. 
So God raised up the king of Israel for his purpose. It didn't mean that he created Pharaoh for this position. It simply means that God worked to the end that this particular evil, obstinate man would sit on the throne in Israel's history because God had a purpose to accomplish. It does not mean that God raised them up so that he might be foreordained to hell. No, this man, as we're going to see, was already hardened. He was already evil. He was already obstinate. And so God will use his personal wicked choices to proclaim his own goodness. Now look carefully at verse 18. So then, he, the Lord, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, some of my Calvinist friends would read that verse and say, poor old Pharaoh. He didn't stand a chance. He was a pawn in the hand of God on his divine chessboard. God set him up so he could knock him down. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could send him to hell. Now, that's what some people think, that God predestined Pharaoh to go to hell, to give him this hard heart. And they would say, just as God predestined some people to have a hard heart, he'll take other people's heart's heart and he'll predestine them to have their heart softened that they might believe. And so God uh, softened your heart, they would say, and that's why you're a believer. And he left other people in the hardness of their heart and that's why they are headed to hell. Now, if you believe that, you have a soft head. I don't believe that for a second. Exodus 7 and verse 14 indicates the hardening of Pharaoh's heart related to his not letting the people go that God's name might be proclaimed. Now think your way through this. The Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it in whatever direction that he wishes, like a channel of water. And this is a classic example. God was not glorified in predestining Pharaoh so that he could go to hell. God, the Bible says, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But God uses the decisions that this man makes that God's name might be honored, that God's name might be lifted up, that his name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. And to this day, thousands of years later, we're still talking about these 10 mighty plagues that God did. Hold your finger here and let's go to Exodus 3. Exodus 3, again, right after Genesis, Exodus chapter 3. Because again, I want you to see the context of the quotation that God gives. Now, you might want to go home today and read chapters 3 through 10. It would be a good exercise. And if you do, you will discover that the first two references to God hardening the heart of Pharaoh were prophetic in nature. God just predicting what he is going to do. Then the next seven references are to the Pharaoh hardening his heart towards God. And it's not until the Pharaoh first hardens his heart towards God that God then in turn responds. God's first hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the Bible indicates, doesn't take place until after the sixth plague. Pharaoh first hardens his heart by his refusals to respond. And then he hardens it again after the seventh plague, and again after the eighth, and again after the ninth, and again after the tenth. God never smushes Pharaoh's free will. He simply judicially confirms him in his own hardness of heart because of decisions he first made. Now look at Exodus 3 and verse 18. God told Moses to go to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, 
has met with us. So now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Someone called me in the Bible line recently and wanted to know if that was deception. God is not deceptive, and Moses was not deceptive. God was giving the Pharaoh an incremental chance because God even loved Pharaoh like he loved Judas. He knew that if he could take this small step, he might be able to take a bigger step. But then notice what God prophesies in verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go. If God didn't know that, he wouldn't be God. I know he will not permit you to go except under compulsion. But that does not change the Pharaoh's free will. God tells Moses, in essence, I know everything about this man. I know his heart, and I know that he will not let my people go. God knew that. And God doesn't harden this man's heart until he makes the first response. So here's a man, he starts as a rebel. And while the plague should have gotten his attention, you read statements like Exodus 8 and verse 15, which say, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. If you go back and you read these chapters carefully, God again prophesies that he's going to harden his heart. But he never does until this man first refuses to listen. And while six times it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's only in response to this man first hardening his heart towards God. And so on one occasion, he finally says, I've sinned. I've sinned against God. Pray to God that he might take it all away. And as soon as God does, he hardens his heart again. God showed this mercy, but because his repentance was just in the storm and it was not genuine, when the calm comes, he goes right back to his own obstinacy. You ask, well, why did God harden this man's heart? What was the purpose? Again, it tells us here in Exodus 7. Look at verse 3, Exodus 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and will bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And then in verse 17, uh, verse 16, which Paul quotes in our chapter this morning, he says, for this purpose, chapter 9, verse 16, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God's purpose was to bring honor to his name. And God's going to be honored no matter what. It doesn't matter who the man is. God will be honored by the life of a saved man and God will be honored by the life of a lost man. In fact, the day is coming, the Bible says, when every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And if God does not get honor in Pharaoh's salvation, then God will get honor in Pharaoh's retribution. You say, what honor would he get in Pharaoh's destruction? He'd get the honor that he is a righteous judge. A policeman who takes a bribe has no honor. A judge who is soft on crime has no honor. But a judge who cannot be bought and who deals righteously, we would call an honorable judge. And God is going to get honor. His name is going to be proclaimed. His righteousness is going to be shown. He's going to get honor in his holiness. He's going to get honor in his justice. He's going to get honor in his mercy and in his compassion. 
So God is saying here in verses 17 and 18, I've raised up Pharaoh. I'm going to proclaim my name to the whole earth because of what this man is going to do. Now let's apply the passage this morning to our own lives. Three simple applications I want to make. Number one, first I learn that it is foolish to test the patience of God. It is foolish to test the patience of God. God did not immediately obliterate Pharaoh. God was patient with Pharaoh. You may be thinking, well, is God holding back his wrath today? Is God being patient today? Of course he is. Second Peter 3 tells us the only reason the Lord Jesus has not yet returned from heaven is he's giving people more time to repent and to believe. But one of these days, the clock will run out and you will either meet God in death or through the return of his son. And so the Bible tells us a day is coming when God will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who are unresponsive, who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And what's going to happen? They'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Is God holding back his wrath today? Yes, he is. Because God is not willing that any should perish. God is giving people more opportunity to repent. But one of these days... God's patience will give way to God's wrath. And one of these days, you could potentially cross a hidden boundary that God alone knows where you will be forever lost. So it is foolish to test the patience of God as this king did. Secondly, it is unbelief to doubt the love of God. Now, before we're done with this chapter, we have at least two more weeks in it. I hope you will see that God did not set his affection only on a select few called the elect. But God truly loves everyone. God, we will see, did not automatically predetermine people so that they had no say in it. Listen, if that's how God's sovereign will is expressed, then why on earth did the Lord Jesus weep over Jerusalem? It's not predetermined. You see, I choose to interpret what is unclear in the Bible in light of what is very clear. And so when the Lord says he's not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, all means all. When God says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, not all kinds of men. People want to make all kinds of theological twists and gymnastics with this to fortify some phony baloney doctrine they have concerning election. No, God desires all men to be saved. He said what he meant. He meant what he said. And you're a favorite in mine. For God so loved the world that he gives his only son. Now, on occasion, we have people who come to this fellowship who want to debate me on this and they want to change our church. In fact, they are so driven by the sovereignty of God, you can scarcely get into a discussion with them. They can scarcely, if they're a pastor, preach a sermon. If they're a Bible study leader, they can scarcely not finish that Bible study without somehow coming back to the doctrine of sovereign election. And again, we've seen that words like election and predestination and foreknowledge are all biblical words, and we're going to plunge into them further through this section. 
But what people do sometimes is they infuse their definition into the word that is really foreign to the scripture. And let me just say parenthetically here, we have some people who come who are five-point Calvinists who love the Lord God, who love this church, who love God's people. And together they say, I'm not going to make this an issue. I'm not going to let this divide us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the spirit of plurality that God has allowed us to experience on some of these issues. And that's the kind of difference that can only happen when there's humility and it's not driven by arrogance. But I have some friends in which that spirit would never fit. I would call them hyper-Calvinists in the truest sense. And they're not comfortable with that kind of plurality. And they will come here and they will try to change this church on occasion. Listen, if you're a five-point Calvinist and you hold every point of it, I will love you, I will shepherd you, I will fellowship with you, but please don't try to come and change this church because we're not going to lose focus. There's more important things that we have to do than to argue with you. Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The biggest arguments that the Lord Jesus had during his public ministry were with those people who were constantly trying to limit God's love and God's grace. And they were constantly surprised over the fact that God wanted to save certain people when they thought they were the chosen people. I always find it interesting that my Calvinist friends say, well, we're the elect and my kids are the elect and my grandkids are the elect. And one of the struggles I have with Calvinism is it's hard for me to believe that I love sinners more than God does. I really believe that the Lord's sole purpose for coming was not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And the Lord gave us a great commission, and we're not to just sit around and discuss doctrine, as important as doctrine is, as important as these discussions are, but we are to be about his business in bringing people whom he genuinely died for, whom he genuinely cares for, and we are to share it with anyone who will listen. It's foolish to test the patience of God. It's unbelief to doubt the love of God. Third, it is unwise to flaunt the grace of God. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Pastor, I thank God I'm saved. I thank God that I finally repented and believed and I will not be eternally hardened. But is it possible for a Christian to develop a hard and calloused heart? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me answer it. The answer is yes, if you flaunt the grace of God, and no, if you yield to the grace of God. Please understand, Romans 9 in the whole epistle is crystal clear, as is the whole New Testament, that it is absolutely impossible to lose your salvation. But it is equally clear that a Christian can be complacent. As Paul will say in Galatians 5, that one can fall out of grace, not out of salvation, but out of the realm of grace because they flaunt the grace of God. They can become stale in their relationship with God. And as we've been studying on Wednesday nights, they can lose their first love. Sin can make you calloused and insensitive to the things of God and disobedient sometimes in even the smallest little things can rob you of your first love. And that's why John will say it is only as we walk in the light as he is in the light that we're able to have fellowship with one another and the blood of the Lord Jesus can cleanse us from our sin.
Sin is so deceptive, it deceived the heart of the king of Egypt. And it will deceive many into embracing the Antichrist. It is deceiving many lost people in our day to embracing wicked, evil things. And I fear that it is deceiving many of God's people and making them insensitive and callous where they've lost their first love. Now, if you're here today and Christ is your Savior and your heart isn't right, get it right before you leave. But if you're not saved, get it right before you leave. Because God wants you to be saved today. You don't have the promise of tomorrow. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And your heart this morning is in the hands of an all-loving, all-powerful God. And what you choose to do with His command to respond today may determine what God will choose to do with you for all of eternity. God can have compassion and show mercy. Or God can say, I've had enough and put the final callous on the human heart where you are lost forever. So what will you do? What will I do? Holy Father, we thank You this morning for the Word of God, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. Thank You for Your compassion in bringing us the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank You that in my own sin and obstinance, You opened my heart up to the wonder of the Lord Jesus and what He did on His cross. That at the age of 18, I might believe and be saved. Help us never to take our salvation for granted because like the people there in the wilderness, we deserve nothing but wrath, but You had mercy and compassion. There are people here today, Father, You know who they are. They are unsure that if this were their last day upon the earth, that they would go to heaven. I spoke to some that said, I want to go to heaven. I think I might, but I don't really know. Help them to see the wonder of the cross, that Jesus didn't die for some or most, but all of their sin, paid its full eternal debt, that if they will call and trust not themselves, but the Lord Jesus, calling on His name, that You will save them now and forever. Help someone in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help us in humility to deal with our Reformed brethren, many who love you passionately. But help us not to have a spirit of disunity, but help us in humility to love and to show the compassion that has been shown to us. And Father, if there is something in our hearts today that is blocking intimacy and seeing and seeking Your face, may the Spirit of God bring it to the forefront of our minds. May we not substitute even Your holy blessings for You Yourself. Like Moses, we'd rather be dead than to live without your presence. May that be our passion, we ask in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled, The Mercy and Judgment of God, use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM47, entitled, The Mercy and Judgment of God. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And if you'd like to hear more from Audrey, visit her new podcast entitled Rare But Real. The Rare But Real podcast is available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify Podcasts. When we return Monday, Pastor Carl begins a look at God's sovereign choice. Join us then as we search the scriptures.